The following program was made possible by Ward's lawyers. Find us at wardlegal.ca. Yep, we're skipping over the usual hilarious opening comic sketch so that we can launch right into the show because it is jam-packed. And you've got stuff to do, places to go, people to meet, and... Oh, right, maybe not so much until June 2nd. Well, like one Kinkajou said to the other, hang in there, eh? Better days ahead. Also, Kinkajou is a great word, right? Thanks for being with us. My name is Denny Grignot. I host this program. Today, Ops Baseball is back. Maybe. Cameron's hockey analyst, Owen Hargrave, is definitely back talking hockey. And Habs versus Leafs. His Leafs, my Habs. A lake jump for a good cause in Kobe. Funding cool ideas in Fenland. And Dunsford's Nathan Truax on his authentic evolution into genuine country artist. This is episode 31 of the Advocate Podcast, Stories from Kawartha Lakes. More than a year into this thing, and pretty much everyone is feeling a bit closed in. But if you've had to quarantine, and quarantine in a place that is not your own home, those walls must especially feel like they're frequently closing in. Maybe always. Just ask those who've had to cross the border or returned home from overseas and had to be sequestered in a hotel. That's what I did. I, I asked someone about that kind of experience. The Lindsay Advocate's own Trevor Hutchinson occasionally travels to a Iqaluit in his job as the CFO of the Pingua Association. It meant Trevor and anyone wanting to travel to a Iqaluit has to be approved to do so by the government of Nunavut and then must quarantine for 14 days in an Ottawa isolation hub hotel before flying from Ottawa to Iqaluit. I spoke to Trevor the day before his quarantine was done and started by asking him how day 13 compared to, say, day two or three. You know, I was mentally prepared for it. That being said, you know, day two or day three, uh, you know, it was it took some adjustments. Uh, what kind of adjustments? Describe those to me. You know, I've been doing some sort of various stages of lockdown, but in this case, I'm in a room by myself. And there's one block, I mean, we're allowed outside, uh, but there's like one small block that we're allowed on. You know, so for people not familiar with Ottawa, think like York Street, uh, think York Street South, the distance between, uh, you know, Kent Street and Russell Street. And it doesn't get any, it doesn't really get a lot of sunlight and you're allowed to walk up and down that block. And everything uh, and everything you do is supervised by security guards. Well, I was going to ask you that. So when they say you're allowed to walk outside, what happens? Does somebody knock on your door, say, Mr. Hutchison, okay, we're ready for our walk and everyone's in PPE and, and 10 feet apart? Or how, Just describe that process to me when, when, you're, allowed, when you're allowed yard time. Uh, provided that you're asymptomatic, like people can come and go. So I can go outside anytime I want to. Basically, so the next time I leave my room, uh, I will pass a security guard that's posted near my room. And then I walk down the hall, I will pass another security guard. And then I will meet a security guard at the elevator and I give them my room number. Uh, only one person in an elevator at a time. Uh, and then when I get out, when I get out the door, I'm greeted by another security guard. Uh, and I tell them my room so so that my you know my comings and goings are always tracked. So I've never said a hotel room number as many times as I have. <laughs> uh, you know I will uh, 
I'll have a hard time forgetting this number because I'll probably say it, you know, 30 times in a day. Um, and there'll be usually four security guards out there, you know, two kind of observing from a patio and one at each end of the street. I'm just curious, Trevor, what's that like having to go through all these checkpoints with, uh, and I'm, I'm sure they're very polite security guards, but what's well, it like just so knowing that we, every move is tracked like that? It's, you know, it's weird. I've, uh, you know, thankfully, I'm, you know, I guess I'm proud to say I've never been incarcerated. So I've never had the feeling of always being watched. And uh, sure enough, by day two, I realized that uh, it was an it uh, should it was a really important part of the day to get out, get some exercise. And I'm really getting to see COVID zero in action. Right. And it's like, yeah, here's like, here's how you do it. You uh, you don't mess around and you don't uh, make compromises. And that's the process. You know, as I described, the street doesn't get a lot of uh, it doesn't get a lot of sunlight. Right. So there's certain times of the day where there's like little slivers of sunlight between the buildings or something. So you'll see people safely in a social distancing manner, just trying to grab a little bit of sun. You know, any strangers you're seeing, you're just like everything is a reminder of like something that you're not able to do, you know, even within the even within the context of whatever lockdown system the rest of Ontario is in. But you get the hang of it. And then, you know, getting over that first week, you know, the hump of the first week and then and then it's just a countdown. Right. I recognize how fortunate I am and I recognize my privilege because I've met young mothers here who are, you know, here with, you know, young children. My only challenge was making sure that I kept myself occupied. Well, let me tell, um, let's talk about that, how, how you kept yourself occupied, because I'm going to guess in a 24-hour day, I'm going to guess that 80 to 90% of your day is spent in your room. So how are you keeping occupied in that, you know, a 12 by 12 space? Work takes a big chunk. Daily conversations back home. You know, Ruth and I started a system where we would have you know, over the phone, we would have coffee together like at 6.30 in the morning or something. Reaching out to friends, I was able to remotely participate in a, a virtual trivia night that uh, a group of my friends and I started and have maintained throughout COVID. You know, so there was, you know, a little peak of normalcy in that. I did not enter my Netflix account information. So I did not turn on Netflix or any streaming service I also didn't. Uh, you did that intentionally. You mean you 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 didn't want I, it? I did that intentionally, just just for the challenge and just to get just to get out of it. You know, they encourage uh, mental health. There's a daily check in, a daily phone check in, in addition to a few in person things. There's a daily nurse check in, asking for symptoms and ask how your mental health is. And in their in the preparatory information I got, they, you know, they're giving tips and they were like uh, practice mindfulness. And so I thought, you know what, I should really take this opportunity because it'd be, it's really easy, as we all know, over this last year, it's really easy just to turn on Netflix or Crave and get sucked in and get sucked in. And that's a great way to, you know, I, uh, I watched a lot of shows over this last year on Netflix. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to try to not to do that. And I haven't. I subscribe to a lot of uh, magazines and newspapers online. So my one concession uh, is that I brought I, uh, I did bring a guitar was able to play my guitar outside. I found a way that I would be a, could turn my back so that I wasn't projecting my voice to anyone. But a few of the security guards were, were close to where I was. And so that's the closest I've come to playing a concert in a year. 
you and I have both been on the road. I was on the road for you know a number of years as a as a touring comedian. And I knew you know you performing as well, and we all know what that the road is like and waking up in a hotel room. But I just wonder what what's your first thought when you wake up in the morning in that same bed that you've been in for 10, 11, 12 days, what's the first thing that, that you think of? Well, another thing they did suggest uh, to practice routine. So I would do the exact same things at the exact same time. You know, if you need a change of sheets or towels or whatever, you just put a list that, so that's, so basically it's, it's not really like staying in a hotel. It's more like staying in a condo that you're responsible for upkeeping. Uh, and so I would always do the same thing. Whatever that list was, it was the exact same every day. And I would say within five, you know, you could usually set your watch by it. Adding routine added some normalcy to it. Did you ever think you were going to bail, Trevor? Like, did you ever reach a point when you thought, I can't do this. I just, I got to, I, I got to get out. No, and apparently it does have, you know, I've heard, you know, stories because I've also met people who've had to done, I, I met one person earlier in my stay that this was their seventh time doing it. Oh. Uh, I did have to admit, admit to myself that this is this is slightly more challenging than I was expecting. The good news is that Trevor did complete his 14-day quarantine successfully and made it to Iqaluit and is now back home in Lindsay. My name is Maria Francis from Ward's Lawyers in Lindsay, your official sponsor of the Advocate Podcast, Stories from Kawartha Lakes. As of this podcast's production day, we still don't know when exactly the NHL playoffs start for the Canadian teams, but we do know who will be playing who. My Habs playing your Leafs, and you know who you are, in the playoffs. They're going to be playing each other in the playoffs for the first time since long before podcasts were a thing, long before Owen Hargrave was born. Owen, you'll remember, is the preteen hockey analyst from Cameron, whose YouTube channel on all things NHL was featured in episode 24. But the Leafs have acquired Riley Nash, who is a good bottom six player too. Now, Owen is a fair journalist, but he also freely acknowledges his love for the Leafs, which is why I reached out to him again to feel him out as a fan, but also as a hockey analyst about this oh-so-special and long-overdue first-round series. Then again, maybe it's people my age making this out to be more than it really is, because this purported historic rivalry wasn't top of mind for Owen. Rather, it, it was about who the Leafs would not meet in that first round. Um, a little bit better, because they were going to have to play Edmonton or Winnipeg. And it wasn't as tough as a series, in my opinion. They haven't played each other in the playoffs since long before you or your parents were born. So what did you know about that that rivalry from, from your parents or your grandparents or whoever? How much did you know about it? Um, A little bit. I've read some books over it. Um, I've watched some videos on all the stuff. I've seen that it's been really rough. I think now in the next um, couple of years, it'll get a little bit higher. They haven't been good at the exact same time for a long time. You're right about that. Yeah. So when you hear people my age talk about the rivalry, does it just seem a little um, overblown to somebody like you or, or, or do you get it? Well, kind of. It might not be the biggest rivalry, but um, the Leafs have got a couple more bigger ones out like that are closer in the area. 
Ottawa still is, even though they're not competing at, in a high level. And in this series, I think there's going to be a lot of fighting, checks, fights. Really? Like, why, why do you think that? I just think that Simmons is going to be fighting a lot, especially like if there's some dirty hits. Um, and then Montreal's going to stand up for their players because they're more of a tough team. So I got to ask you, when that first puck drop uh, takes place, are you going to be watching that first game alone or are you going to be surrounded by other Leaf fans? Um, it, it's usually just me because mostly everybody else is sleeping. Okay. Well, maybe that's better. I wonder if it, if it, it would make you more nervous if you had a whole <laughs> bunch of Leaf fans around you watching the game. A couple people in my family, they're Habs fans and... Uh, we're probably going to be arguing a lot. Oh, really? So what's what's the mood like now uh, between you and those other Hab fans in your family? A little crazy, arguing about who's better and all that other stuff. <laughs> well, hopefully you'll get past this. Hey, I got to ask you, um, Owen, because... Um, now you're a fellow journalist. You're you're a you're a sports broadcaster in your own right, and you know that you have to be fair as a sports journalist. But given that you're such a diehard Leafs fan, how are you going to manage that that fairness in your Owen talks lots of hockey YouTube sports reports? Um, that's a hard one. Um, those teams are really close, even though Montreal has been on a little bit of a skid for a while. I think that um, Leafs have been better overall, knowing, but Montreal has had some better stints um, sometimes during the season, and you can tell by the record who's better. Okay, give me your prediction, Owen. What's uh, what, what do you think this series is going to turn out to be? Because I'm sure you've been already mulling this over. Leafs wins in five games, and Montreal only wins one one game by an OT win okay well let's see what happens my name is Owen Hargrave I am from Cameron and you're listening to the Advocate Podcast stories from Kortha Lakes go Leafs go amidst all of ugh, this this past year some light and some hope in Fenland Falls, a group of locals has been forging ahead with the goal to improve its community via the Community Fund Fenland Falls. Officially launched last month, the CFFF is a non-government organization that sees people from Fenland Falls contribute funds, and in some cases, big funds, to a pool of money that is then doled out to various groups in Fenland Falls. Chris Hanley is a resident and business owner in Fenland Falls and a committee member with the CFFF. He joins me on the line now. Chris, thank you for making time uh, for us. Thank you for having me. Okay, before I get into the origins of the foundation, uh, I got to ask, how much money are we actually talking about that that's available for, for these groups? At present, the fund has raised just over $400,000 between our two active projects and the three so-called self-directed funds that have been set up. What do you mean by a self-directed fund? Those funds have been set up by donors uh, specific to their needs, and they direct those funds into the community themselves. In this case, they have been set up as scholarship funds. Mr. Fontan of the PharmaSave in Fenland Falls was the first to get this going, and he set up a fund that supports both elementary 
and secondary school students for scholastic excellence. Uh, we have another fund that was set up that specifically will be helping nursing students to pay for their tuition costs, um, but it could also be very broad as well. The key is that as a fund within the Community Foundation of Kortha Lakes, we must adhere to those funding areas that the foundation was set up to uh, look after. Now, I recognize that the donors, that, uh, that they do get a tax receipt, but they could get a tax receipt with donations to all kinds of organizations. What reasons were they giving you for contributing specifically to this fund? The big differentiator in the case of the community fund, Fenlon Falls, is specifically Fenlon Falls. It's helping to keep those dollars local and assist with local issues or opportunities that arise within our community. Are there any things that before this even came together, were there things that you and your group, even if you were just informally sitting around a table, or I guess via Zoom in these days thinking, you know what, it would be great if we had money for X specifically geared to Fenland. Did that ever come up? Oh, absolutely. The part of the genesis of this entire fund uh, arose during the economic development planning sessions that were going on here in Kawartha Lakes, first with the business retention and expansion project, and then later, more recently, with the downtown revitalization project. And both of those planning processes encouraged us to think big about the ideas and developments that we would like to see happen in our community to keep us vibrant and allow us to grow for the future. And so many of those were outside of what a government could normally provide. And of course, funds are always needed to make those things a reality. Did you find people who were from Fenland who were saying, look, I, I don't want to give to the broader fund that's run by the entire city of Corth Lakes. I want it to be geared right here to Fenland. I just wonder how narrow it became for the donors. Well, that's another interesting point and part of our genesis. It arose through two seasonal residents that approached some of us in the community saying that they wanted to give back specific to the events and local programming that's run by volunteers. And they had raised the example that they and their families have uh, lived in the area and experienced these things for many years, but hadn't necessarily given back. And they were looking for an outlet to be able to directly contribute to the things that they love in the community but of course also wanted tax efficiency alongside that. So to date, one of the large self-directed funds that we have is the holding of a, what I would say is a seasonal resident. He is now a permanent resident and has located here, but his experience is as a cottager and, and he grew up cottaging in the Burnt River area and as a result of that is looking to contribute back to the community that has helped to raise him. What kinds of things are you looking to support? What, what boxes is the committee looking to check off? Any area of interest that the community sees fit. We will respond to community need as we're able. The goal would be to raise a discretionary fund of $6 million, which from that, we would have proceeds in the range of 250000 that we could disperse into the community every year. And of course, we would want those projects to reflect the auspices and the areas of importance that has already been established by the Community Foundation. What are the big the big important ones that, that have come up when, when you were talking with your committee? What areas? Arts and culture has been a, a big one, of course, and, and that's shown in the two projects that are already live, the sculpture 
project as well as the amphitheater project. There's a lot of interest in the committee to expand healthcare offerings and improve the health in rural Ontario. Um, education is a big area in helping kids to achieve higher education. And economic development is a key cornerstone as well. Um, there's some interest in additional docking and some park improvements and those kind of things that help with the physical vibrancy of our community. How important is it to keep everything related to the fund as centric to Fenland Falls as possible? I'm thinking of the arts installations that um, that you funded uh, that include works from artists. One, I think, is in Madoc and another one was in Apsley. So how what's that challenge in trying to keep it as close to Fenland as possible? Our, our stated primary goal is to raise the profile of philanthropy in the community. And so we're we're not necessarily trying to be overly narrow and, and prescriptive in terms of what Fenland is as being flexible and responding to what the community sees as important for future development. A year from now, let's say, when we're you know back to relative normalcy, what would you like people to say about Fenland uh, as a result of this fund that they may not have said previously? I think that we will be able to create Fenland as a place where these hopes and dreams that we have had for a very long time can actually be realized. We'd like it to be a vibrant community that is inclusive for everybody, not just people that live here or cottage here, but anybody that might like to visit or travel through the area. We want it to be a place that has wonderful quality of life, that's supported with things like great healthcare and education, and with the amenities and necessary infrastructure that it takes to support that. You're listening to episode 31 of the Advocate Podcast, Stories from Kawartha Lakes. You can subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, always free, thanks to our exclusive sponsor, Ward's Lawyers. If you're looking for a lawyer, Jason and Carissa Ward and their team, they've got you covered. Find them at wardlegal.ca. Okay, forget the baked goods sales and bottle drives and the car washes. Last year, when Dean Michelle and Jennifer Bacon set out to help raise funds for the Cobaconkin Area Food Bank, they looked to the end of their dock on Balsam Lake. And along with about a dozen people, they jumped in the lake, raising about $15,000 for the cause. Well, this year, they recruited about 30 other lake jumpers, taking the plunge from their respective docks. And they raised more than $50,000 in support of the creation of the Cobaconk Wellness Center, which would serve as a hub of various medical practitioners. I spoke to Dean from his dock moments before he was to make that jump in May when it's not summer. I started out by asking Dean this very important question. What kind of swim attire does one wear in May, early May? Did I mention he did this? In May? Okay, so uh, I pledged to everyone who would donate for me that there would be no Speedo for Dino. So I'm respecting that. If you were wearing a t-shirt, that's what it should say. Okay, now this, uh, the actual uh, event itself, you mentioned sponsors. How do you go about, you and the other 29 or 30 people, how do you go about actually raising money in a socially distanced way for this collective jump? Uh, last year was just sort of a spur of the moment thing. I said, hey, if we could raise $500, I'll jump in the lake. Well, my friends and neighbors and everyone around heard about this challenge. And they said, we want to join in. 
So they did, and uh, we all raised, yeah, about $15,000. So what do you do? Do you so, literally just call on friends and say, if I'm going to jump in the lake in May, can you pony up some money? Is it that simple? Basically, kind of social media driven, and it just sort of snowballed from there. Now, so this year, we organized it a, a little better for the Wellness Center in Cobaconk. We partnered with the Cobaconk and Norland Chamber of Commerce, and the uh, city of Kortha Lakes, the municipality, also supported us. We created a, uh, a Canada Helps page and just directed people there. And then word got out in the community. And what do you know? We have probably over 35 participants today. Why is the Wellness Centre important to you and your community right now? Well, Denny, there's a, a, a serious health gap up here in the northern Kawartha Lakes region. And... Uh, we need, and you know, the pandemic has uh, sort of brought this to the forefront, but we need uh, some significant healthcare initiatives. And this center, that uh, it hasn't been built yet, but we're in the planning stages now, is going to address a lot of those healthcare gaps. It's going to have uh, more doctors, uh, dentists, even physiotherapists. Uh, it's going to be a community hub for health mental health as well and we're going to have uh, an after hours clinic so it's not just for uh local residents it's for seasonal as well and, I, want, uh, I wanted to ask you about that because you do stress that that it's for both seasonal and full-time residents and and you've been both you you mentioned that you started out as a cottager and now you're a full-time resident uh how how do you think this initiative has brought those two groups together the the seasonal cottagers and and the full-timers well, let's put it this way. We've had almost 500 donations. And uh, it's just been a fantastic community initiative. And uh, it is bringing the community together. Uh, we have over eight lakes today. Uh, like I said, over 30 participants. And here's the other thing we should also uh, keep our eyes on. Uh, when there's a, you know, a sort of a non-emergency healthcare need, a lot of people will just have to go to either a uh, emergency room in Lindsay or to Minden. And so when we have a wellness center here, that's going to take some of the pressure off those facilities. Okay, I, I know you're you're probably anxious to make this jump now. And uh, yeah. I did the polar dip about 30 years ago and never again. How does the anticipation this year compare to what you were feeling last year, Dean? Oh boy, um, let's see. It was sunny this morning, which was positive, and now it's becoming overcast and the wind is picking up. Denny, I got to just get in and, and get this thing done. Please I'm ready. do. And can, can we talk oh. briefly afterwards when you come back out? Certainly. I'm going to hand my the phone to my daughter, Bronwyn, and she'll be uh, commentating if you want. Oh, yeah. I, I want the play by play. Okay. I'm ready. Yeah. We can do this, Jay. Oh, boy. Yes, you can. One, two, three. Woo! Woo! Yes! Yes! Oh, yeah. I, uh, oh, boy. <laughs> you know what? I, I should have told you ahead of time that in post-production, I, I could add in beeps if you were going to use expletives, but you didn't. So hats <laughs> off to you, Dean. Okay, I want you to get warm soon, but before we get to that, um, how can people contribute? Well, you can go to uh, KawarthaLakeside.com. 
uh, we will continue to uh, keep that page alive or uh, any uh, donations for it. And stay tuned. There will be future fundraisers. Uh, maybe not as chilly, though. Dean, thank you so much. Go wrap yourself up in a blanket. Okay, I will. Take care, Denny. You too. Bye-bye. My name is Amelia Boyd from the Lindsay Community Food Market, and you are listening to the Advocate Podcast, Stories from Kortha Lakes. Children in Kortha Lakes and their parents are hoping to hear and create those once familiar sounds on the Diamonds again this summer. Once familiar because baseball was pretty much suspended last summer in Kawartha Lakes. But Melanie Babcock is doing everything she can to ensure we will hear play ball again this summer. The Lindsay mother of three, all ball players, is the president of Ops Minor Baseball. Now, pending approval from the provincial government, some 400 kids will be back on the diamonds in about a month. But playing ball in Kawartha Lakes this summer, if it happens, and Melanie is confident it will, will mean playing by a different set of rules. I spoke to Melanie Babcock recently outside her home in Lindsay, and I asked her what's motivating her to try and get a season up and running this year. I, I've missed seeing those uh, 450 kids out on the baseball diamonds, like, and the smiles on their faces. And when we had to cancel our season last year, it was it was horrible. Like, there was so many disappointments. There was so many sad faces and, and not allowing those kids to be out on the field just to get that extra curricular activity and, and have fun. So take me through the decision process to give it the green light this year because I'm guessing it's not going to look like it has when my sons played a few years ago. So it's not going to look like that. I have developed uh, in coordination with Baseball Ontario and Softball Canada I have developed a five-page COVID safety plan in order to get these kids back on the field. This plan has been approved by the health unit. What kind of things um, are in the plan? Like so what kind of, of things are in the plan. Uh, masks will have to be worn for the kids. We won't be allowed to share equipment. So each um, player will have to have their own equipment. Um, there will be a contact tracing for anybody that's at the diamond this year. That's an awful lot to negotiate. How do you, how, how do you, kind of govern and police all of that as it's taking place? Basically, the rules are the rules, and um, I have 460 plus kids registered this year, and I haven't had any complaints. Uh, the parents of Ops Baseball have been amazing, and um, I think they're ready to do whatever it takes to get their child onto the field and able to play some sort of organized sport. You almost wonder if they're more amenable to wearing a mask now than they might have been a year ago. It's They've had a year of not playing baseball. Do you get that sense that it's like, hey, we'll do whatever it takes? Yeah, I totally get that. I, I've talked to people on Facebook and through text messaging and people are like, where do I buy a bat? Where do I buy a ball? Like, I'm ready for this. I'm ready to get my kid out there. Each kid will have to have their own bat and glove um, and water bottle, um, but in the need, if the child needs unable to afford one, we will, as Opsy Baseball, will provide that to the child to use for the season. I don't want to see any kid not play and we will do everything in our power to have them. We're, we're at the mercy of the government right now to say yes you can play or no you can't play. Um, I know Baseball Ontario and Softball Canada have petitions going around. How much are you gambling on, on it happening? What, what do you think the likelihood of a green light is? 
I'm 95% sure that we'll be able to have some sort of baseball season this year. I know other centers have had baseball last year and did a phenomenal job. And with, personally, my kids are in Baseball Oshawa and Port Perry, and I've done a lot of their uh, regulations and rules and brought them to Ops Baseball. And it worked out phenomenal, and I'm hoping that I can have these kids on the field at least, hopefully, by the end of June. Your own children have been a part of this league for so many years, and I know you've got one playing there again this year. Um, what does this mean for them? It's a whole social aspect that they're missing. Actually, today, 11 years ago today, my son played his first baseball game with Ops Baseball, and now he's waiting for a college scholarship. So for me to see a kid like that that has gone through Ops Baseball, and, you know, my son's just not the only one. There's many kids that have played through Ops Baseball that are, are playing in Oshawa, Pickering, Ajax, you know, the bigger centers right now. What do you think that first day will be like when you're sitting in the bleachers with your mask, distance from everybody, watching that first pitch? What do you think will be going through your mind? Probably have tears in my eyes because I can't wait to get these kids back out here. Um, you know, it's a big, It's I've missed it. I've missed, you know, being at the Diamonds, watching the kids play and watching the umpires learn and, you know, the parents socializing, you know, I... When that day comes and I see I have games at Ops Diamonds, I it would be a good day. Hi, I'm Melanie Babcock from Lindsay, Ontario. And you're listening to The Advocate Podcast, Stories from Kawartha Lakes. Uh, so this next song is about being broke. It's called Broke. My one man, she left me today. She had big old bills that I Nathan Truax is someone I'd been looking forward to meeting for quite some time. I had heard about this young multi-instrument playing musician. The first time I actually heard Nathan perform was on his high school stage about 10 years ago. And then I saw him a few years after that when he was the drummer and one of the founding members of the Kents, now known as Heaps. So just recently, I, I made the drive over to Nathan's backyard at his home in Dunsford, just steps away from his home studio where he creates with a multitude of instruments. And we sat a good two bass guitars apart. Um, okay, uh, well, first thing I actually was going to ask you about when I did a little bit of research, uh, the Rick, you've got a Rickenbacker? I do have a Rickenbacker, yeah, yeah. So basically, I got a gig playing in this band called... If you don't know, a Rickenbacker is a classic rock bass. Think Eddie Lee of Rush or my hero, Chris Squire of Yes, Paul McCartney. And it's a bass guitar that Nathan freely admits he coveted. But you might not guess it looking at Nathan today. You see, Nathan Truax is all country, right down to the mustache and the cowboy hat and the belt buckle. It's a relatively new transformation. And Nathan, one of the most affable people, not just musicians, but just one of the most affable people I've ever met, he comes by that honestly too. Empty wallet keeps me up at night. Can hardly bring myself to eat. I got into country music, and that's why I started writing music. And I saw somebody perform country music, and I was just like, that is what I want to do. And it was just like, a, I've never had, I, I think a lot of musicians, when they first start playing, they have these light bulb moments that go off. They're like, I want to be this, or I want to be that. 
Um, I think I always had a bit of an identity crisis as a musician my whole life. And I was like, what am I? I don't know what I, I, I don't know what to introduce myself as, if it's a drummer or if it's a guitar player or a bass player or whatever. Um, but when I, when I heard kind of country music for the first time, it was just like, oh, this is what I want to do. Take know? me to that moment, what the song was, what you were feeling, what that euphoria was like. This, take me it was amazing. So I was in, uh, it was kind of funny timing, but I was in university and basically somebody came up in conversation, but uh, basically was like, oh, you wouldn't like this type of music. You wouldn't like this artist. They're, they're hardcore country music. And I was like, well, I'll see about that. So I put on that artist and I was like, oh my God, like, what is that? What is this I've been missing? And I, I like, I bought the record and then immediately I was going on a tour with uh, Said the Whale, the man I was playing with at that time. And I was just like, from that point on, it was just nothing but country music. And I was just, I was starting to like change in this whole different pace of, of a musician and, and wanting different things. And then I saw the artist in question there, his name is Daniel Romano. And I was just like, that's what I want to do. I want to do that. Like, I, I don't want to do anything else. And ultimately, I, I, I kind of just left everything else and started writing songs. You're touring with a band that is not playing country music, but your headspace is is in country music. What was that like negotiating those two? <laughs> it was tough. Um, I started, like, wearing Western shirts, and they weren't really a fan of that. So it was it was really tough because especially I didn't have anybody to talk about what I was getting into or this type of stuff that I was really liking. So it was it was hard. It was just like I felt like a fish out of water. You know, I felt totally out of place. And even with, with friends and stuff like that, they just, nobody else is really into it. So I, I had to find a scene of people. And luckily I have found a scene of people that are into similar stuff. But it was, it was tough. And I couldn't bear the sight of you in someone else's arms. You know what they say. I remember at one point I was in Reno, Nevada playing this show and nobody was there and I was just like what am I doing I'm like 21 years old I'm not playing the music I like to play like what am I what am I doing here I'm not playing to anybody I'm not making any money you know why am I doing this I could play to 20 people at home and play the music I love why don't I just do that so, so what was it like when you did that, when you made that decision and you came home and you got to play your kind of music in front of 20 or 100 or 200 people? Amazing. It was like when I got over the initial, because I think the first couple times on stage, I was just like terrified and I couldn't absorb it at all. But the, after the first three times, it kind of calmed down and, and I had a band behind me at that point. Like um, it was like, this is this is finally what feels right in, in terms of identity I guess you know it's like oh this is what I want to do this is this is how I want to present myself and it was amazing I can't help but love you till the day that I die but I know deep down how does that reflect in your music and how you write it how you perform it being being a homebody because I know when I've seen the, this, the videos there's a real there's no sign that says Dunsford above it but <laughs> I, I can just feel that it's you're you're close to home how that, does that reflect on your music that's funny i don't know i i think it's a pretty subconscious influence maybe because i don't think well the whole country thing is like we're in the middle of the country as it is i i, I think it's fully subconscious i don't think it's it's intentional that uh i think if i was living in the city that it, it would be different but that's a i never wrote music in the city i don't know what that would turn out to be like anyways so let me ask you where when you write where do you have to be physically and in your headspace to do that Headspace is a difficult one because it's just kind of a very flowing thing that I try to chase and sometimes you don't get there. So it's one of those things I think you have to be relaxed. I've lived in the city. I was never really that relaxed in the city. 
Could you write? Could you perform? A Could little bit. Perform, yeah. Write a little bit, but I think it was always just sketches. I don't think I was ever really... Here I can write a whole record and not really think twice about it, but in the city it was always kind of like, can my neighbors hear me sing? I don't want... You know what I mean? Like, you're always close to people, and it's nice to have space. Every night I leave you heading to the bar. I remember the first time I stepped in front of a microphone. Uh, it was at Boiling Over Cafe. And I, I've had the good fortune of playing some, like, reasonable-sized shows behind a kit or behind a bass or whatever. But, like, as soon as you step up to a microphone, it's like I was shaking in my boots, like, literally. I was terrified. So it was very hard for me. And I don't think I – I'm not a confident singer. It's That's not something that comes natural for me, like playing guitar or playing drums or whatever, as naturally. But you were an established drummer and still are. But right. you had cemented yourself as, as the drummer. So yeah. what, what, what precipitated that – that that move from the from the stool uh, behind the a drum kit to being to standing up behind a microphone and singing with a guitar. I think it was one of those things that the it was just the environment I was in. So when I was playing drums, it was just because the gig was there and that was what I was happy to do. Um, when I got into writing, I just got into country music and I was like, I feel like I can write this, and it was just the that's what I was into at that time i don't think it was really a conscious like all right it's time to put the sticks away and let's play drums it was just this is the kind of natural flow of what's next this is the opportunity that presents itself right now so i'm going to take hold of it what's nice is i still get to play a lot of drums because i play all the drums on my own stuff and i would happily take a gig on drums again i miss it quite a bit like i haven't played drums on on a stage in in a few a few years now um i really miss being behind the comfort of a drum kit but i'm sure that again that gig will happen once the the right opportunity will arise i think for the drums again hurt somebody on a let a hobo moan jimmy's daddy's been a long time gone he's been a long time gone when i'm creating i'm pretty self-conscious and i don't really want other people in on that process in the city i felt like i was constantly ears everywhere you know so yeah, yeah. but you do have a, a couple of sets of ears here your parents are like on the other side of the wall and they're both musicians yeah so, but so i don't care that? what they think you know <laughs> no they've heard me my whole life and i've kind of gotten over that but you know anytime i was in the city i left i lived with people that i knew but not as well as my parents maybe you know and also i, I played played with mom and dad for years so you know having them hear me is nothing new <laughs> What's that like now to still be creating as an adult? Is so close by in your own studio, close right next to the house. I think with it, mom and dad close by. What's that like? It's a very humble way of creating music. I think it's just where I grew up playing music and stuff like that. And I know a lot of people, like my friends in in heaps there, they go somewhere to create music, and that's amazing. And that's great that they have the luxury to do that. But I I I, I don't really. It's just me and and. Uh, I think it's just humbling, you know, being around those people and being where I grew up playing music and in the same room, you know, so. You're not self-conscious about your mom and dad coming in and going, ah, I think you should have tried this instead, or? Oh, they do, but I take their opinions with a grain of salt anyways. <laughs> you know they're going to hear this, right, Nathan? <laughs> Hope so. What's the matter with me? What makes me want to love every woman I see? But despite the fact that you grew up in a musical family, that was your first introduction to real traditional country music? Yeah. Dad, funny enough, dad played in a country band for years and years and years, and I think it just exhausted him out of it, so he just wasn't into it and didn't really expose me to it much. And mom, mom is not really a country lover 
that much anyway. She was more into like the progressive stuff, like kind of what you were into, actually. The yes and the gentle yeah. science and <laughs> that kind of stuff. Okay, there, there's a real dichotomy here. This is not what I expected. <laughs> it's generally the parents who steer their kids towards country music, oh. and the kids are, hey, I want to listen yeah. to the new stuff. <laughs> I call like funny. I call my parents both closeted country fans because they do like country, but I, I I'm sure they would admit it. But you know, they didn't introduce me to do it. It wasn't it wasn't them that was like. Check out Merle Haggard or whoever it might be. You know, it, it wasn't them. It was it was kind of my own. Wiggled my way into finding it, and they were like, "Oh God, really?" <laughs> it almost seemed, at times, playfully. Ironic. I mean, right down to the mustache. I mean, you're already nodding, and and I say playfully ironic. Some people might even wonder, is he mocking it? But there's that fine line where it was just like, I, I, I think I'm slowly getting what he's wanting here. So you tell me what it is you want me to. That's really think. cool. I mean, I just like, I don't think I want to present country in like I am the most authentic cowboy that there ever lived like sure i grew up in the country but like i don't bail hay you know i'm not like a cowboy per se i just want to present country music in a light that's cool because i don't think a lot of people think it's cool you know i think a lot of people just think it's that lame old music or, or whatever but it's really cool i think it's really cool and i want to present it uh, in a way that's digestible Oh, what are you to do is already an earworm for me. And when I <laughs> first heard that, I thought, okay, is he playing around? No, dude, I think he's into this. So, yeah. I mean, for me, it's like I, I'm doing this as as authentically and as well as I can. But uh, I think there are things that I can do to make it digestible. Like, for example, like I play with the guys that I play with aren't like diehard country guys. They're like it's Tanner from Peeps, you know. And I, I think that kind of introduction makes it a lot more digestible for people. Is there's some sort of familiarity to uh, to what I'm doing already, so it's not as hard of a pill to swallow. <laughs> Leaving my home with a one in hand, get you deep in. That old stuff was just really real, you know, and I think that's what I latched on to is I really like stuff that's truly real and authentic. And Again, the modern stuff has its place, but that old stuff is just like that's what they were, and I think that's kind of part of the reason I, I latch on to that. When I first heard Cheat Man's Blues, I heard this 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 great, this fresh finger-picking off the top, and I went, oh, okay, this is good. This, I, I like this. And then it just moved seamlessly, it seemed, into traditional old-time country strumming. And uh, if you had described that to me, I might have said, well, that's not going to work. Pick one. But it did work. So what's what's it like when you're trying to marry those, you know, those almost those two genres, if I can even say that? That's funny that I'm glad that it seems seamless, but uh, it's hard for me. Like, even with the record that I'm working on right now, it's just like, is this what I'm writing too far away from what I want it to sound like? Like, is this too much of a pop song? So I don't know. I don't know where the line is, and I, I probably cross it all the time, and uh, I try to stick with one way, but I think the idea is, like, whatever the song calls for, I'll just execute it. And the line moves, doesn't it? All the time. 
because it's never the same. With every song you write, it kind of it's in a different place, and and you have to chase it. It's especially tough when I'm playing all the instruments too, because there's a lot of uh, decisions to make that way too. You know, how do I play the drums in a way that suits the song but is still in the vein of everything? You know, it's it's difficult. Two times the love I think I always kind of like teetered on the edges of country music with what I liked anyways. You know, that early Eagle stuff, stuff or the band or that kind of stuff always has those kind of country-ish things. And I was always into that type of thing. I just didn't embrace it like I am now, I guess. Mm, yeah. So there is that fine line that you've managed to, you've, you've managed to negotiate that line between making it uh, maybe slightly irreverent, yes. but also making it cool. Yeah, that's kind of the goal, I guess. Cheatin' Man Blues, written and performed by Dunsford's own Nathan Truax. I was right, right? Affable and down-to-earth in that country music kind of way. You can find Nathan and his music and his great leather work on Instagram and at NathanTruax.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram and our Facebook page. We love hearing your comments about the show, which exists because of Ward's lawyers. Now, if you're looking for a lawyer, please contact our official sponsor at wardlegal.ca. They have all your legal needs covered. The Advocate Podcast Stories from Corth Lakes is produced by me, Denny Greenell. Our theme and musical bridges are courtesy of Gerald Van Halteren. Good gravy, it's going to be great when we can see him and Nathan and all the wonderful talent perform live here again. And that is coming. Stay the course, folks, and talk to you in a few weeks. We miss you, Dan.